0: And we welcome you to the morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I don't have to tell anybody listening to this interview, listening to this broadcast, that the last few days have been tremendously painful and traumatic and frightening uh, for the citizens of Kenosha and for communities uh, just lying beyond. And, of course, the reverberation uh, from the uh, shooting of Jacob Blake Uh, are being felt in cities all across the country. I feel very privileged indeed that uh, we can have a morning show conversation with Jennifer Kobina, who is professor of criminal justice at Michigan State University and uh, the author of a book called Hands Up, Don't Shoot, Why the Protests in Ferguson and Baltimore Matter and How They Have Changed America, published by New York University Press. And, uh, of course, we are now joining, that is, Kenosha is joining with uh, an ever-lengthening list of cities in which these kind of controversial and uh, and tragic incidents have occurred. And uh, we are feeling the pain of it and dealing with the ramifications of it on all kinds of different levels. And I really appreciate... uh, Professor Kabina uh, being able to join us on short notice to uh, talk about her book and to offer uh, any perspective that she might have uh, on the situation with which we are grappling here in Kenosha. Again, her book titled, Hands Up, Don't Shoot, Why the Protests in Ferguson and Baltimore Matter and How They Changed America. Professor Kabina, we welcome you to the morning show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Ahead of us talking about uh, the specifics of our current situation, I wonder if you could give us just a, a brief idea of what has drawn you to this overall topic, even ahead of writing uh, this particular book.
1: You know, uh, much of my research uh, focuses on issues of um, uh, the criminal justice system and um, Uh, The the systemic barriers that people face uh, within the criminal uh, legal system and race has always been a central component, uh, whether we're looking at uh, uh, policing, courts or corrections. And so um, I've always been drawn to uh, the impact that race has on how um, uh, how individuals of color are treated within the system.
0: You begin your book with. uh... An interesting account of an invitation which you received back in 2014. Tell our listeners about that.
1: Yeah, you know, um, after Michael Brown died in 2014, I, um, uh, like many others, I was watching on television what had happened and I was flabbergasted um, and outraged by uh, the police response. Um, and I will say I had lived in St. Louis for five years while pursuing my doctorate degree at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And I, I had only lived a couple of minutes from Ferguson. And so one of my colleagues, um, within a month or so um, after Michael Brown's death, had emailed me and several other um, uh, social justice uh, uh, scholars to ask if you does anyone want to go to Ferguson and conduct interviews with uh, protesters? We knew that history was in the making, and we wanted the opportunity to um, hear from the voices with those who, uh, hear from the voices of those who are on the ground and protesting and uh, trying to have their voice heard. And so ultimately, uh, we ended up going. And so two to three months after Michael Brown's death, I went to Ferguson and conducted. 100 interviews with protesters and residents um, in the city of Ferguson. And, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, eight months after, Freddie Gray had died. And um, I did something similar where uh, uh, three months after his death, I also went to uh, to Baltimore and conducted um, 92 interviews with activists. And I really wanted to understand uh, people's experiences with the police and how these experiences shape their perceptions. I wanted to know what galvanized the Black Lives Matter movement and also given the uh, militarization of the police uh, towards uh, protesters, I wanted to see how those actions impacted uh, activists willingness to engage in subsequent um, mobilization
0: efforts. It's a complicated thing to talk about because we're talking about different events that are tightly woven together and yet at least in some respects, distinct. We are talking yeah. about incidents in which uh, a police officer has uh, has uh, acted in a way that, at the very least, is uh, inappropriate. Of course, most would say uh, uh, absolutely indefensible. Uh, no. And then we have protests that are stirred by that act, and then the police response to those protesters. And uh, so there, there are a lot of things that, that go on there That that's, in a sense, a chain of events closely linked. How do you see the importance of, in a sense, keeping them distinct?
1: So in terms of keeping each of these incidents distinct, I mean, definitely, you know, unfortunately, you know, the script, is pretty much the same. You know, uh, We unfortunately we are seeing black individuals uh, who are killed by the police. They're distinct because these are different individual people who are now suffering, who have now either lost their lives uh, and their families are, are suffering and struggling. Um, and, and the community is also reeling. And, you know, um, oftentimes when these um, tragic incidents occur, um, you know, as I mentioned, there's pretty much a script that ha- occurs. That is, um, it often uh, will elicit outrage and protest in the city and possibly around the nation, um, and an investigation will be initiated, and the accused officer will be placed on leave. Uh, sometimes that can be paid leave. Uh, the officer may or may not be indicted, but he, the officer is rarely convicted and sentenced to a term, uh, to a term of imprisonment. Um, in general, what we see is if the family sues the police department, uh, they will often receive a civil settlement, but there will, there will be no admission of uh, fault uh, by the city or police department. Uh, and so that's typically what we see. Um, and there, what we, we also see such outrage because we, because of this uh, legacy of r- racial injustice that, uh, that's taking place. Because of the number of black and brown individuals who are dying at the hands of the police. And even though many of these uh, uh, tragic encounters are recorded, um, oftentimes um, we see um, officers not being held accountable. Hmm.
0: Let me turn for a moment to the current event uh, here in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which of course was touched off uh, by the shooting of Jacob Blake. And uh, it was an incident that was caught uh, on video, not once, but but uh, but at least twice, and uh, a, a truly horrific scene, although there are certain questions that still remain about just exactly what was uh, transpiring. And at this moment, uh, not a not a great deal of information has has yet been shared with the public. In the wake of what occurred here in Kenosha, we have seen demonstrations, and we have seen, rioting and looting and I think one of the points that many people struggle with myself included is trying to understand the relationship between those two between the demonstrations and the riots and the possibility that we are sometimes talking about different groups of people engaging uh, in that activity for perhaps different reasons, perhaps related reasons. But can you help us sort that out, Uh, the matter of demonstrations versus rioting, and how you would call the general public to sort that out and understand, uh, in a sense, both the difference between them and and the connection between them?
1: Sure. You know, most people who... um protests are doing so peacefully. However, absolutely, uprisings, riots um, uh, do occur. Um, And, you know, what much of the research has shown is that when uprisings or riots take place, that it's really the language of the unheard. They are essentially expressions of pent-up anger, which is really symptomatic of systemic societal problems. So ultimately, when there is a deep-seated grievance Um, such as uh, police violence, institutional violence, which is what we've been seeing take place for so long. And when that has not been adequately addressed and it's coupled with people feeling ignored and silenced uh, time and time again, that's when uprisings occur. So for people who are constantly marginalized and constantly ignored – you know, uprisings, riots, whatever word you want to use, can ultimately serve as a powerful mechanism to have their grievance heard. But in addition, it's not only a mechanism to be heard. It is a way to oppose and resist the system that oppresses. It's a, And so when individuals choose to engage um, in such uh, behavior, they're really essentially like bucking up against the system. And so ultimately, it's the language of the unheard. And um, uh, riots or uprisings draw attention to, you know, these issues that many are trying to spotlight in ways that peaceful protests may not always do so.
0: Hmm. So what is your word for someone who lives in this community and uh, perhaps is deeply sympathetic to some of these issues that of course do need addressing, uh, but whose own flower shop has been destroyed or whose used car, light, car lot has been uh, consumed by, by fire and completely destroyed and, uh, and, and, and so on. When we are talking about uh, expressions of anger and frustration that, uh, that, that cause destruction and often hurt, the very community that, uh, that is potentially part of the solution, not just the source of the problem. Uh, there is understandable anger and fear stirred up by those kind of incidents. Um, what would you have members of the community do with those understandable emotions at this moment?
1: yeah it's definitely uh hard especially for those who um are um are business owners and their businesses are destroyed um i will say that um what many activists are trying to spotlight is that you know uh, that people are actually losing their lives and this is a result of institutional violence and uh, what many activists uh, state is that buildings, uh, businesses, all of these can be um, built, they can be restored, uh, but yet when someone loses their life, we, they cannot be brought back. Um, and so, uh, there's, generally, there's a lot of focus on, you know, interpersonal violence that takes place, but institutional violence, that is violence from uh, taking place uh, from the state, the, you know, state officials who are supposed to protect and serve. Um, is is just as um, uh, tragic. It is is just as necessary to spotlight these issues on. Um, and again, the the overarching argument being that lives are more important than um, than buildings. Uh,
0: I think some people would argue that uh, if that is the purpose behind torching a building or and in some cases destroying entire neighborhoods, that that is perhaps a a means that is to some extent counterproductive. That is, uh, one is certainly running the risk of, of entrenching certain attitudes and certain fears uh, that are part of why we are where we are right now. And that these seem like uh, solutions that might give a certain sense of satisfaction in the moment, a certain release of anger, but yeah. actually are not part of any kind of worthwhile rebuilding of trust and 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 building up of, of justice. Uh, is that a fair summation of what we're talking about?
1: Yeah, certainly, you know, when these take place, it doesn't help to build trust. Absolutely, it doesn't. That does not help at all Um, but I will say that um, in many of these um, uh, communities um, they're already faced with a host of structural problems from issues of high unemployment high rates of poverty uh, segregation racial isolation lack of resources homelessness right so so all of these are structural problems taking place within uh, within these neighborhoods Um, And and they run deep. Um, And so uh, by the time, you know, when looting and rioting, when that takes place, and and, uh, certainly I understand um, uh, the outrage when that takes place, when people uh, uh, question why does that happen, um, there are also these underlying structural problems uh, that have failed to be addressed. For, for decades. Uh, again, these deeper structural problems dealing with, uh, from, again, segregation and unemployment and lack of opportunities and resources within many of these uh, poor, marginalized communities.
0: It sounds like uh, what you are engaging in is, but, but correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you are trying to explain uh, rather than excuse uh, the yes. behavior that we see in in riots and and uh, th- 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 those yeah. kind of incidents.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Is definitely uh, provide um, uh, some context in terms of uh, trying to explain why what well, much of the research shows in terms of why these why this takes place why um, looting why people will will resort to looting and why people will uh, why uprisings take place within these communities and and they often take place because uh, again many are resisting a system that already oppresses them
0: one of the difficult aspects of what has uh, maybe transpired in kenosha uh, is the fact that uh, the, the perception from the community is that uh, as these demonstrations have taken place, and for that matter, uh, the riots that have also ensued, uh, that because of exactly what you're talking about, the legacy of Ferguson and Baltimore and, and other places where demonstrators were treated in harsh fashion and perhaps in ways that uh, the, that they should not have been treated, uh, that then, in certain other communities, when this occurs, uh, law enforcement officers, for instance, feel uh, a, a, a very powerful sense of 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 uncertainty and just what to do, and perhaps demonstrating more restraint than in fact is appropriate. I mean, certainly for the person who owns the flower shop or the used car dealership, they would probably say that uh, that in, in our particular case that. Too much restraint was shown for too long of a time. And uh, I, I wonder if 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 that is part of the legacy that we are, are talking about and if that complicates the way in which we look at all of this.
1: So, you know, what again, what much of the research shows is that when it comes to, for example, uh, the use of aggressive tactics, repressive tactics by the police uh, and, and police militarization um, it, that it's used heavily on, you know, when people are protesting and they are people of color. You know, the civil unrest that erupted in the summer of 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri, um, and even, you know, after, following the George Floyd's death, it drew, has, it drew a lot of attention to the heavy militarization of local police departments um, and uh, and its heavy use of heavy of uh, military tactics. That are directed towards those who are protesting, from the the use of tear gas, rubber bullets, uh, long-range acoustic riot control devices, um, and, you know, military-style armored tactics, t- tactical vehicles. Um, so, for instance, what happened in Ferguson showed the ways in which local police departments can misuse military weaponry to intimidate and to repress communities. Um, and again, to uh, it is one's constitutional right to engage in protests. And I will say also that, uh, in general, there are a large number, the vast majority of people are engaging in peaceful uh, protests. Um, and so when... Uh, so, when you have officers using military equipment, um, essentially they're coming in as an occupying force to view and they view the protesters as the enemy. And there's that type of um, besieged mentality uh, that's created by the militarization of the police and the repressive use of tactics uh, by the police, that ultimately sends the message to uh, many communities of color. It's usually used in black and brown communities, and it sends the message that they are the enemy um, and that they are not viewed uh, as uh, as people worth uh, protecting and serving. Hmm.
0: I think one thing that is worth our talking about is uh, the use of demonstrators. I mean, the term demonstrators. And uh, again, uh, looking at our current situation uh, in in Kenosha, I think it is tempting, and perhaps it's appropriate, perhaps it's not appropriate uh, to view d- those that engage in in peaceful or at least orderly demonstrations. Uh, as one thing, but then those who are engaging in rioting, in the 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 building of the burning of buildings and so on, the destruction of entire neighborhoods, that that is something else that is going on, and and in some cases perhaps we're even talking about different people, some people engaged in the first, and others engaged in the latter. Um, yeah. I I wonder as you study what has gone on in other places, and as you Think about what has been going on here in Kenosha. Is that a distinction that is meaningful, and is it useful, and is it appropriate, or do it we?
1: Absolutely, yeah, no. It absolutely is uh, an appropriate um, distinction, and uh, you know, we err when we use the two terms interchangeably: uh, uh, demonstrators or protesters, and uh, quote-unquote rioters. Um, oftentimes, they are not one and the same. I know that when I uh, had interviewed uh, protesters in Ferguson and Baltimore, uh, many of them uh, had stated that they never engaged in looting or rioting and that they did not, um, uh, they did not condone that. Um, however, there were a handful of people who said they did not take part in it, but they understood it and that it actually took that to draw media attention to these issues. But they certainly are not one and the same, that you have a number of people protesting peacefully. And even, I will say, even after George Floyd's death, protests have been taking place in many cities, uh, nonstop. But yet we, if you're not in these cities, many people wouldn't know it because they're peaceful and therefore, it does not bring about media attention. What brings about media attention is, um, is when uh, violence takes place, is when um, looting or rioting takes place. That's what uh, brings about media attention. But that does not mean that peaceful protests have not been taking place and that the vast majority of people engaging in demonstrations are doing so peacefully.
0: Exactly. I think one of the reasons why I... I want us to explore this, and why I'm, why I'm glad to hear your perspective on it, is because of the, the thing that I was saying before, that one can feel tremendous sympathy for the cause, uh, have feelings of, 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 have grave misgivings about the status quo and about systemic injustice and so on. And uh, I think those that, that feel that sympathy uh, uh, in a sense, do not want that sympathy to be, in a sense tarnished or undercut by other acts that tend to have that, that very uh, effect. Uh, but I think what you're saying is that there are those who fervently believe that there is no other way to really put this in the headlines. Uh, and that if this riding was not occurring, uh, then Kenosha, Wisconsin would not be the top headline. Uh, across the country right now.
1: That is correct. And again, it's the same thing. I mean, it's the same thing that's happened in times past where it it takes, uh, uh, it's often the looting and rioting that actually spotlights the issue because the media just can't ignore it. Um, And even if the media uh, does try, for instance, to ignore peaceful protests and the use of social media, especially spotlighting some of the, the looting and uprisings that are taking place, um, it, it, it's its, it's going to go viral. And so as a result, um, we know what makes the news. If it bleeds, it leaves. If, if there's violence, it's going to leave. And so that's what we see taking place. But I will say again that the number of people who choose to to hit the streets and, and protest, they're, they're doing so because... Um, they see a, a grave injustice taking place, uh, and, and that these are not isolated incidents, that these, um, uh, uh, that, that these incidents continue to take place time and time again. And there actually, there is real fear amongst Uh, uh, black individuals, that they can ultimately end up becoming um, uh, the recipient, the victim of institutional violence, that that they or their family members, their loved ones, can ultimately become the victim of police violence and for doing nothing wrong, for just simply being, for simply doing some of the everyday things that any one of us should be able to do uh, by living in this country. And so There is fear that simply one's presence, because they are black, will evoke suspicion and fear from the police and could ultimately turn deadly.
0: And they could become the next Michael Brown or Freddie Gray or, or Jacob Blake. Yes. Let me reintroduce you.
1: That is actually why why so many people actually chose to protest. Like In in my study, uh, two-thirds of people who were protesting were doing so for the first time because they felt an obligation to do so. And they felt that failure to do so would mean more black people dying at the hands of the police. They wanted to see real concrete changes some policy and practices to put an end to police violence and systemic racism. And, and, and so uh, the reality is choosing not to protest, it was, no longer an op- it was no longer an option. People felt that they had a moral obligation to hit the streets and say enough is enough.
0: We're speaking with Je- Jennifer Kobina, uh, professor of criminal justice at Michigan State University and the author of a book called Hands Up, Don't Shoot, Why the Protests in Ferguson and Baltimore Matter. Uh, and how they have changed America. So from your many conversations with uh, demonstrators, first of all, I assume that you have spoken both to, let's call them peaceful demonstrators, I mean, who have engaged in what we really think of as demonstrations versus those that have engaged in rioting and looting. Uh, I assume that you have talked to examples of both and that, I mean, sometimes we're talking about people who, are, who have engaged in, in both kinds of activities, but um, when we are talking about demonstrators who end up, in a sense, crossing the line and engaging in this other activity beyond demonstrations, typically are there catalysts that, that cause them to do so? Because, of course, not all demonstrators do that. Some demonstrators... Remain squarely, you know, within the scope of demonstration uh, without resorting to uh, violence and destruction. What typically is what what drives certain demonstrators to this next level of activity?
1: You know, um, I, I should say that the vast majority of people I spoke to actually engaged in peaceful demonstrations. I think I can recall maybe one or two who actually stated that they did. Um, uh, take part in looting. Um, uh, and, and so the majority of people did do so, they were engaged in peaceful protests. Um, so it's quite challenging to answer that question. No doubt there are some people who, um, who go in with the intent of, um, uh, of destroying property. Um, and, but yet at the same time, I spoke to many people who uh, many activists who actually talked about how they tried to hold the line uh, when people uh, when, when there were a number of demonstrators getting really angry and upset, and they tried to make ensure that um, uh, that they were holding the line so that they wouldn't uh, be aggressively um, uh, 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 harassed by police or even for those I, I can recall talking to a couple of people who uh who saw people choosing to loot and and riot and and t- telling them that they shouldn't be doing that that this is not this is not the way or not the answer and so uh, so again i just want to highlight that um, it, again those ter- terms not only should they not be used interchangeably but there are a lot of um, demonstrators who are actively trying to stop, uh, such actions from taking place.
0: Right. And, and I think that's, <laughs> I think that's an important thing to, to, to say and to say again, that, that, that kind of, the, the, when, when it becomes rioting, uh, it is not just the shop owner, uh, that, 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 regrets that, I mean, that bears the brunt of, of, of that destruction, but also those who, uh, have been demonstrating peacefully uh, who, who deeply regret when, when uh, things, in a sense, spin out of control into kind of a, a different direction. Just to get very personal for a moment, I feel like I am f- probably fairly typical uh, of a Caucasian, uh, of, of, of a I, I am probably fairly typical of a white male here in Kenosha who is, suddenly finds my sympathies torn in several different directions, Whereas in the immediate wake of the shooting of Jacob Blake, uh, I, like every person I know, was absolutely horrified by that sight. And and now I find my horror (laughs) directed in in other directions besides Jacob Blake. And I wonder if, if these rioters understood that there is the real potential for them to be, in a sense, diluting the horror that all of us should feel over Jacob Blake right now because now we are also feeling horror at uh, at what has happened in the wake of it. Uh, but uh, as you say, uh, if, if we don't speak with many who engage in this activity, it's hard to know if any of them are, are even mindful of that. Uh, does that make sense, what I'm spelling out there?
1: Yeah, it does. It does. And, and I think, you know, certainly there are a number of individuals who are not necessarily um, – uh, thinking in the long term about uh, how the effects that it can undercut the overarching message, right, that uh, people are trying to spotlight as it relates to systemic violence and, and systemic racism uh, that exists in this country. But uh, part, it really is, you know. Uh, for many, uh, again, when uprisings are taking place, it's, it's a way for them to be heard. There's out, there is great outrage among some um, and um, anger. And, and, and for, for some, the only way they know how to take that out is by, is, is by destroying property. Hmm.
0: Do we know very much about uh, who tends to be the, the, in the one group versus the other group? Uh, I mean, has that been studied to any significant extent? I mean, uh, uh, do, we, do we see, for instance, kind of a different level of, of income or professional standing or so on amongst those who choose peaceful demonstration versus those who engage in this other kind of activity? Or is that very hard to uh, determine and uh, is it dangerous to make generalizations like that?
1: Yeah, I think it is dangerous to make broad generalizations like that. Um, the reality is when people are protesting, we are now seeing like a, a large array of diverse people engaging in protests, right, from black, white, young, old, you know, people in, who reside in urban cities to even individuals in rural and smaller towns. And so um, uh, it. Quite challenging to actually specify, for instance, who's more likely to engage in um, in looting or riots. Mm.
0: Of course, one of the really important stories that you studied in your book, Hands Up, Don't Shoot, uh, in terms of what occurred in Ferguson and Baltimore, is that we are talking about incidents that inspired uh, not just days or even weeks, but months of demonstrations and protests over this issue of systemic uh, injustice. Tell us more about the kind of scope of what we are talking about and why these particular incidents, you think, uh, ended up generating that kind of response.
1: So, again, as I mentioned that, you know, both Michael Brown and Freddie Gray and, again, what we see now is countless other black individuals dying at the hands of the police, they were viewed as victims of injustice. These were not isolated incidents. Um, and so many uh, took to the streets because, again, they either directly experienced um, uh, institutional violence or, uh, from police or uh, they knew of others who had um, and so uh, people felt as if they had to, um, they had to protest uh, in order to try to bring about change. I will say that um, it's interesting because people are protesting police violence, yet um, what happened in Ferguson, what happened in Baltimore, and even, you know, what, what's happening in, in many cities is we see even uh, aggressive police tactics being used on protesters. We see police violence. Uh, being used uh, on many uh, people who are peacefully protesting. And so what I have found in my book, Hands Up, Don't Shoot, is that those who protested on the front lines and who are much more vocal about uh, denouncing police brutality and who uh, ultimately they challenged the authority of law enforcement, they were also much more likely to experience and witness um, uh, uh, repressive or aggressive police action. So, so for instance, many uh, were more likely to be have experience being tear gassed, shot at with um, rubber bullets, um, have physical force used on them, more likely to be um, arrested or have uh, uh, right, rifles uh, pointed at them. And, and yet what was interesting is that for those who were most committed to this movement, um they were insistent on continuing to remain active in protests in order to bring about change. For those who are most committed, there were some who felt like they're willing to die for this cause. This is their purpose and calling in life, which is to spotlight these issues of institutional violence in order to bring it, to to put an end to it. Mm -hmm. I will say, however, there were some um, who were, who were deterred from engaging in subsequent uh, street protests because of the uh, aggressive and coercive ways that authorities police protest. Um, and, and for those who were deterred from engaging in future street protests, they did find different ways to try to stay motivated and ultimately engage in the overall ideological goal of the Black Lives Matter movement. So for instance, some organized and they strategized behind the scenes. Others became grassroots organizers, um, some became much more civically engaged and others became social justice advocates. And so ultimately, the more repressive or aggressive the police were, the more some protesters developed resistance and became much more civically engaged in an effort to root out uh, systemic racism uh, and put an end to police violence that continues to rob so many uh, Black people of their lives.
0: Hmm. One conversation that I think is always very difficult to have when we are talking about this uh, is the matter of the incredible difficulty that law enforcement officers uh, deal with each and every day on the job which is not to in any way excuse the inexcusable when uh, when deadly force is used in circumstances where it simply is not called for when it simply is not uh, appropriate and yet there is this other reality that that needs to be part of the conversation about uh, the, the difficulty and stresses of police work, and often of the uh, very, very challenging circumstances under which uh, police officers are called to make life and death decisions. Um, what kind of engagement do you think is necessary with the law enforcement community in terms of, of addressing this issue of, of inappropriate police violence versus harboring a, a, a mutual understanding of of what policing is or should be all about?
1: You know, I will certainly admit that police do not have an easy job, right? At, at this point, you know, in time, um, there is so much distrust <laughs> between uh, communities of color and and the police. Um, uh, And so right now there's a great deal of conversation being had about even the role of police. Um, You know, and the reality is that we depend on the police to solve um, pretty much every uh, every societal problem. We look to the police to solve issues of abuse and abandonment, homelessness, uh, domestic disputes, uh, school disruptions. Unemployment and a host of other uh, societal ills. And, you know, uh, many officers will admit that they are uh, – that we unfairly look to them to solve all of societal ills um, and that they will admit, too, that they're not well suited to deal, having to deal with uh, some issues, for instance, pertaining to drug overdose and mental health. And so that's why we see a lot of calls um, uh, to uh, uh, defund the police. And, of course, that word uh, can uh, – be defined several ways. In some ways, in some um, some uh, when they say defund the police, they mean abolish the police department. Uh, others, when they say defund the police, they're talking about reducing um, uh, reducing uh, the amount of money that is uh, placed towards law enforcement and instead reallocating those dollars to more human-centered services uh, that work to keep communities safe uh, and and help communities to thrive. So, for instance, we about $100 billion is spent each year on policing. $80 billion is spent on incarceration each year where uh, black individuals are disproportionately targeted. Uh, and so calls uh, to uh, defund the police is really about reallocating dollars to investing in, for instance, education, health care, housing, and employment opportunities. And so, for instance, the, the way that would look is that uh, strategically, it would be divesting, um, uh, reducing, uh, divesting, police, uh, divesting from having police officers in schools and instead investing in having more teachers and counselors. It would mean divesting from criminalizing mental health and instead investing in uh, mental health and restorative services. It would mean divesting from military weapons used against civilians when they're protesting um, and instead uh, investing in harm reduction programs. And so ultimately, in terms of moving forward, it becomes important to address the root cause of crime, because crime is really symptomatic of much larger societal problems. And so in areas where we do see high rates of crime, we see high rates of unemployment and, and, and underemployment. We see high rates of poverty and homelessness. We see poor quality schools and lack of resources. But yet at the same time, a lot of the research shows us what we need to do to prevent or to reduce crime. And that is if we want to reduce uh, uh, the number of juveniles who engage in uh, in, in delinquent behavior, we need to support families. Um, If we want to reduce uh, homelessness, then we need to provide affordable housing. If we want to reduce joblessness, we need to, of course, provide jobs. If we want to reduce poverty, we need to help people maintain an income. If we want to reduce drug overdose, we need to provide drug treatment. And so this is really about ameliorating the conditions that give rise to high levels of crime. And it really is inappropriate to expect police to address all of these societal problems.
0: Mm. I want to be sure to give you a chance to talk about the subtitle of your book, Uh, why the protests in Ferguson and Baltimore matter and how they changed America. Because we often hear that uh, here we are in 2020 and nothing has changed. And of course, I I really think that is a a gross uh, mischaracterization. But uh, that being said, we are not anywhere near where we want to be and progress is, in some respects at least, uh, incredibly slow. And in some places, uh, perhaps progress is even reversed. Uh, but you see change in America in the wake of of Ferguson and Baltimore. What is the most important change that you have observed?
1: Well, certainly, you know the protests that took place in uh, Ferguson and Baltimore. It, it certainly uh, brought to forefront, you know, it, it brought to the forefront the issues of race and racism and policing, and it's also humanized the victims of police violence. Um, it's um, uh, it's increased conversations and debates regarding police violence amongst amongst academics, police unions, politicians, and the general public. Um, it's also resulted in civilian bystanders now using their cell phones to record police interactions with civilians and it has impacted political conversations. Um, you know, and it's one of the reasons, you know, um, again, the black lives matters movement really began in, um, in 2013, after uh, after George Zimmerman was acquitted in the death of Trayvon Martin, who at the time was a 17-year-old uh, boy. And uh, since, because of the strategizing and organizing and mobilizing of the Black Lives Matters movement, that's why we now see the biggest civil rights movement that this world has ever faced. Um, and so ultimately, we've actually even seen, um, you, you know, many cities now have taken steps to um, even, for instance, to reduce uh, uh, the police budget. We have seen, for instance, uh, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, they terminated their contract with the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, and we have seen other cities uh, following suit. Um, in Ferguson, we did see um, uh, many more uh, black officers within the police department. Uh, def- Uh, The Ferguson City Council, the majority is now black, where before that was not the case. Um, uh, The St. Louis prosecutor, um, Robert McCulloch, he ultimately was ousted after serving seven uh, terms as uh, county prosecutor, and he was uh, replaced by Wesley Bell, uh, an African-American lawyer. Um, There has... um, been the rebuilding of the Ferguson Empowerment Center uh, within, within the city of Ferguson. We know also that the department uh, in both Ferguson and Baltimore, they entered into a federal consent decree with the Department of Justice. And so those are just some of the things that have been done. Uh, certainly so much more needs to be done, but those are some of just the concrete um, changes that have been done um, thus far. Um, but I would argue, again, a lot more needs to be done if we, if we really want to see a systemic change take place.
0: We have one minute left. We are recording this on Wednesday, uh, August 26th. On uh, this coming Friday, you are headed to Washington, D.C. Explain what draws you to Washington, D.C.?
1: Yes, um, I will. So on Friday, uh, there will be a march, a march on Washington, uh, which is um, it, it, commemor- it commemorates the 57th anniversary of doc- uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And, um, you know, thousands of people are supposed to be there. And um, I, I'm going for personal reasons because I, I feel drawn to be there. But at the same time, I also will be um, uh, interviewing uh, protesters and activists um, who take part in the march to uh, to understand what, has, what is driving them to the march, what they hope to see, what are their experience, and what are their thoughts in terms of moving forward. And so these interviews will take place virtually. And so it is my attempt to try to also continue to amplify the voice of those who are um, in the community and trying to bring about change.
0: Jennifer Gabina is professor of criminal justice at Michigan State University and author of Hands Up, Don't Shoot, the Protests in Ferguson and Baltimore Matter and How They Have Changed America, published by New York University Press. Jennifer Cabina, I appreciate you making time for this conversation on The Morning Show. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.